welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hello, my name is Rebecca, and it's uh, great to be part of this series of of learning how to understand the Bible better in our lives. And I know you've been going through different aspects, uh, the divine human aspect of the scriptures, as well as biblical genres and the overarching uh, arc of the redemptive story and what our, our part is in that story. So, but today we're going to look at um, focusing on uh, studying God's word in context. Context is the key word for this message. And why does context matter? So I teach at Tyndale Seminary, and when I teach uh, biblical courses and biblical interpretation and also biblical Hebrew, one of the key concepts I talk about is context. In fact, I say to my biblical studies students, if you just remember one thing from this class, remember the key term context. Why do I say that? Why is it important to understand uh, God's word in context? Just think about that for a moment, that question. Why is it important to understand a scripture verse in context? Why does context matter so much? As I've already probably hinted at, it's possible to take things totally out of context. And if we take it totally out of context, we actually may misunderstand what the text means, and we may then misappropriate it. We may use the Bible even in negative ways, even destructive ways sometimes. And so I'd like to use an example from just how we communicate with one another. Um, because when we use words and sentences, we need to understand that sentence in context. The nuance of the word is understand, understood in context. So, for example, the word trunk. As soon as I say the word trunk, what came into your mind? What kind of trunk? There's actually at least four possibilities. It could be the trunk of a car. It could be the trunk of a tree. It could be the trunk of an elephant, and it could be a trunk uh, as in a big suitcase or a container for storage. That's just four different nuances for that word. But we would easily know what, what the person meant when they used that word in a sentence, in the context of a conversation. We need the context to understand and communicate with one another. But when we're talking about the Bible, what context are we actually talking about? In fact, there is more than one context to consider when we look at the Bible. So today I'm going to focus on three different contexts when it relates to the Bible. The historical context, the literary context, and the canonical context. I am going to define what I mean by these terms. Of course, there is actually a fourth context to keep in mind, and that is our contemporary context. Uh, how is this passage, has, how is this scripture relevant for us today? How does it apply to me in my context? And so that is an important question that we always want to consider as well. But before we get to what it means to us today and its significance for today, actually that's often where we start <laughs> when we look at the Bible. We really should start, what did, what did it mean in the past to the ancient Israelites, uh, to the people of God uh, during the time of Christ, etc., for us to be able to understand what it really means and its significance for us today. So today we are going to look at these uh, four uh, contexts. So let me begin by definition of what I mean. The first uh, context, the historical context. So this can involve looking at historical th aspects, cultural, 
political, economic, social, geographical, religious. These are all uh, different contexts within the larger umbrella of the historical context. It's saying something about the backdrop of the Bible, sort of the backstory or the background of what's going on um, behind the scenes, so to speak. The world of the Bible, the world of the ancient Near East, uh, the world of the Greco-Roman world. So what, when we're studying the Bible, we're actually looking at uh, several different historical contexts, but there's two primary ones, particularly when it comes to the Old and New Testament. So for the Old Testament, it's set in what we might say the ancient Near Eastern context, the ancient Near East, whereas the New Testament context is in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, but within the Greco-Roman world, we also have a Jewish cultural context, and we have a Greek cultural context as well. And so one of the steps is to try to figure out this historical context. Now, I have to admit, this is one of the harder steps in studying the Bible, because we can't really do it so much on our own. We really need study aids uh, in order to dig deeper to understand what's going on in the background. And so we rely on other pastors or theologians or scholars who've actually researched this and written books or commentaries or dictionaries uh, on the tools. So we, we need to um, go to uh, various tools to find our answers. And, and sometimes even our study Bible will have some helps for us. Um, while I was preparing this, uh, uh, this talk today, um, I actually was reading a new book on uh, interpreting the Bible. Uh, was just published uh, by Andy Abernethy, and uh, it's called Savoring Scripture, a six-step guide to studying the Bible. And it's really an easy, accessible read if you would like to pick up a book like that from InterVarsity Press. Um, but he points out when discussing his chapter on historical context, he says, you can ask the following questions. When is this taking place? Where is this taking place? How does this passage fit within the culture of the time? These are historical backgrounds questions. Where is something taking place? Well, that's a geographical question. Um, in fact, it's very useful to use an atlas when you're trying to understand the geographical setting of where something took place. You might find this is funny, but I actually like to read my Bible for my devotions with an atlas. I don't do that every day, but I often have an atlas and, and I check where, where the story is occurring, where, where I'm reading in the Bible. Um, it, and knowing the geography actually matters. It gives us perspective, for example, uh, how, far it is for how, the, how far was it for uh, Joseph and Mary to travel all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, or how far it was for Jesus and the disciples to walk from the Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, and even if you're thinking about uh, the Old Testament, you can look at, you know, where did the tribes settle? And why did so many tribes settle in the hill country, uh, in the mountains? Um, there are actually some very significant reasons why they were living in that area, which is based on the geography of the land. So those are some questions we can ask. We're get other historical questions we can ask relates to authorship and when a book was written and to what audience it was written. These are uh, authorship questions. Uh, who wrote that book? When was it written and to whom it was written? But I do want to caution us here is that it's true that there are certain books of the Bible we don't know who wrote them. 
Uh, we just know they're in our scriptures, but we don't it doesn't tell us who wrote them. Uh, and that's okay. They are still part of our scriptures, but we can uh, try to f discover as much as we can about the, the audience. Even if we don't know who wrote it, we can still figure out uh, something about the cultural context of what's going on in that, um, in that time period. Now, the second context I want to talk about is the literary context. Now, what do I mean by literary context? Reading a scripture passage within the context of a biblical book in which it appears. What comes before and what comes after that particular passage? Why is this passage here in the book? Does the book as a whole shed light on the meaning on that passage? Abernathy says, you know, we should ask, why has this passage been included here in the book? Why not earlier? Why not later? Why here? Now, for all of us, this step is actually a little bit easier to do. It's easier than the historical context question. And the reason why it's a little easier is we can all read the Bible for ourselves, right? Some of us read the Bible in one year. We have these one-year programs. And so some of us are very familiar with the big picture of the Bible. Um, but also we can easily just read the book on our own. So if we were studying the book of Ezekiel, uh, before you're studying a passage, you could actually read the whole book of Ezekiel. You could look at uh, the chapters that come before the passage and come after. So that's not so hard for us. But what the whole point is, is not to read the text in isolation, but to read it in relationship to the chapters that come before and come be after, but also how it relates to the larger themes within the book. Now again, there are different tools you can use for this. Of course, uh, study Bibles and commentaries and uh, dictionaries are useful. But there is an online tool that uh, I know that uh, some of us really appreciate. It's called the Bible Project. And they have on their website, which is free, um, a helpful videos where you could click on, it's called Overview of the Bible. And you can click on a book and gives you a you know, five to seven minute video to give you an overview of the book. So that's a real quick place to start if you want to get an idea of the overview of a book. So when we're looking at the literary context, we're looking at the, the overall, uh, where does a passage fit within the book itself, what comes before, what comes after, how does it fit within a larger section of the book, as well as where else in the Bible does this passage, or is this passage discussed, or picked up and uh, reinterpreted in a new context. Now, uh, the third context I want to discuss uh, today as well is the canonical context. What do I mean by canonical context? How does the passage of Scripture relate to other texts within the Bible? The whole canon of Scripture, we're using that term canon to refer to the Scriptures. And do other Scriptures within the biblical text, um, or, or do other Scriptures refer uh, to the biblical text? And if so, how is it being reinterpreted in the new biblical context within the Bible itself? How does that passage fit into the overall story of the Bible? So those are the three main contexts that I wanted to introduce you to, uh, the historical, the literary, and the canonical context. What I would like to do for the second half of this, uh, um, this message today is actually I'd like to look at an example from Scripture. Um, and where we want to look at it in context. And I'm choosing that very familiar uh, verse that I started with at the beginning of the message. 
from Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 11. So I'm going to read that uh, for you again from the NIV version. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I wonder how many of us have sat down and read that verse uh, in context, has sat down and read Jeremiah chapter 29, where that verse comes from. Did you know that that verse is part of a letter that Jeremiah the prophet wrote from Jerusalem to the exiles, the Judeans that were already exiled to Babylon? And that exile occurred around 597, and I'll talk about, about the historical context in just a minute. Um, so the letter was written somewhere, they think about two years later, maybe 595 or 594 BC. And you can read about the, 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 <coughs> the people being brought into exile in 2 Kings 24 as one of the places in the Bible where it talks about this, besides the book of Jeremiah as well. So let's think about, first of all, the question of the historical context. Who was Jeremiah? When was he living? When was he prophesying? Well, we, are, we learn who Jeremiah is by going to chapter 1 of Jeremiah, where he's introduced as uh, the son of Hilkiah and from Anatot uh, and also from a priestly family. So he's actually a priest who becomes a prophet. He's very much like Ezekiel the prophet, who also was a priest, who becomes a prophet. So um, uh, Jeremiah uh, comes from a priestly background. We also know from chapter 1 that he started his ministry in the 13th, reign, 13th year of the reign of Josiah. And so because we know the reign of Josiah, we can actually give a date to that. So scholars give the date to around 628 or 627 BC, that this is when Jeremiah gets called to become a prophet and starts his ministry. And then he ministers during the, the several reigns, uh, uh, three, reign, three kings of Judah, until the fall of Jerusalem around 587-86. So if you take that into consideration, Jeremiah was a prophet serving uh, his people of God for about 40 years. Now, during those 40 years, most of those 40 years he spent in Jerusalem. However, just the final part of his life, he was exiled to Egypt. Um, Jeremiah actually didn't go into exile to Babylon, but instead spent his final years in Egypt. Now, the other thing we need to know about the book of Jeremiah is that it's an anthology, a collection of prophecies and narrative accounts and because of that, because it's a collection of various prophecies and, and narrative accounts about Jeremiah, things are not in chronological order. Now, we wish it was in chronolo chronological order, um, but it's not. And so it can be a little bit confusing if you're just reading straight through it without the help of a commentary to figure out where things are in terms of the story. Um, so that introduces us to uh, Jeremiah just a little bit, but I also want to talk about the ancient Near Eastern uh, context. So this is still part of the question of historical background, historical context, and uh, I think uh, displayed for you is a map of the ancient Near East. Now, what's helpful for us to know that in the ancient Near Eastern context of this story of the book of Jeremiah, we have uh, the Assyrian Empire, which had been dominating the ancient Near Eastern context for, you know, for a few centuries, and especially in the 8th century, was losing its dominance and power over the region towards the end of the 7th century. 
And in 626 BC, a Babylonian king arose and he defeated the Assyrian army and founded a new dynasty in Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian dynasty. And with the demise of the Assyrian uh, empire, the Babylonian kingdom became um, a force to be reckoned with. They were very powerful at the time. And this had a huge impact on the southern kingdom of Judah and in Jerusalem, where Jeremiah was living at the time. Now, the successor of the founder of that uh, Babylonian uh, kingdom was Nebuchadnezzar. And he, you might have heard of him because you, if you know the stories of Daniel and other stories in the Bible, he is one of the more famous Babylonian kings. Um, but he came to the throne in Babylon in around 605 BC. And he started, um, so he, he and, and, and while he was in power, uh, all of the different smaller Palestinian states came under his dominance and over the, under the dominance of the Babylonian uh, kingdom. And if any state would rebel against them uh, and refuse to pay the tribute or the taxes to the king, then they would experience the wrath of the Babylonian army. And what happened is that the, the small little kingdom of Judah at the time, they were not sure where to, um, <coughs> uh, who to trust in this period of time. And so they were, their loyalties would go back and forth. The various kings of Judah, sometimes they would go and trust in Egypt for Egypt's help. And sometimes they would trust in the Babylonian power. Um, and whenever they rebelled against the Babylonians, that's when uh, the Babylonians uh, were not too happy. And so we have two main uh, attacks under Jerusalem by the Babylonian king and the army at this time. The first one is in 598-97. And that's relevant to the story uh, in the context of this letter in Jeremiah. Uh, the second uh, major attack was in 587-86. And that attack led to the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah and the temple and Jerusalem. And so when we have these two attacks uh, by the Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, with the first one and the second one, we have these major deportations where he deported, the Babylonians deported many Judeans into exile, took them to Babylon. And that's very far away. If you look at the map, I don't know if you, well, how much you can see, but anyway, it's very, very far away, uh, um, hundreds of miles away. and. Uh, and they were taken into exile, into captivity. Uh, and what's interesting is Jeremiah uh, is writing a letter to that community for who had been taken into captivity under the f in, in the context of the first deportation in 597. And in fact, the king of Judah was also taken into exile at that time, King Jehoiachin and his queen mother and others. And they're actually mentioned in the beginning of this uh, chapter 29 as well. Uh, as listed among those uh, that uh, Jeremiah is addressing. So the context of the letter is uh, just after this first deportation. There's still people living in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is still living in Jerusalem. The temple's still intact. And then we have a new king on the throne. But many are now living in exile. Now, Jeremiah decides to write to the exilic community. Uh, in, uh, and, and we have the record of this in ch chapter 29. So now I've talked a little bit about the historical context. Let me just now look at the literary context, and then we're going to read the passage uh, together. 
And remember what the literary context is, it's what comes before and what comes after. Now, because Jeremiah is an anthology, it's a little bit trickier <laughs> in terms of thinking about that. But you can look at the passage right before because it does have relevance to chapter 29 and this letter. And we can look at what happens right after, and we will do that uh, in a few minutes as well. So what comes right before this letter that's recorded in Jeremiah 29? The literary context of that, the chapter beforehand, in chapter 28, we discovered that there's a conflict between a false prophet, and his name was Hananiah. And this conflict between Hananiah and the prophet Jeremiah, both living in Jerusalem. We discovered that this prophet named Hananiah was predicting that the exile would end within two years. It was going to be very short. The king Jehoiachin would come back. And, and, and the people would come back and the, the articles that were taken from the temple would be returned and Judah would prosper again. But Jeremiah says to him, no, you are lying. You are telling a false prophecy. God has not sent you. You are inciting the people to rebellion against the Lord. And as a result, uh, the prophet Hananiah actually is judged for uh, prophesying uh, falsely. And so it's because Hananiah was prophesying falsely, saying that the exile is going to end very soon, in two years, that's the reason why Jeremiah wrote his letter to the exiles. Jeremiah needs to tell them that, no, the exile is going to be actually a long time. They actually have to settle down and build houses and have families, etc. And we're going to analyze that a little bit more. Uh, of course, this is not a message that the people want to hear. They want to hear the good news of, we're going to go home soon. But no, Jeremiah needs to tell them that, no, you're going to stay for a while. Um, but he also wants to reassure them in that, uh, in that context. What's also interesting is that not everybody in, in exile, in the Babylonian, uh, in the community that was living in Babylon, not everyone there accepted Jeremiah's letter as well. In fact, there were false prophets in Babylon who were predicting the same thing, that uh, the exile will end soon. And so you're hearing, you're hearing different voices, false prophets in Jerusalem, false prophets in Babylon, all of them saying it's going to end soon, whereas Jeremiah has the unhappy, <laughs> uh, or whether happy or unhappy, but Jeremiah has to tell them the truth that the exile is not going to be ending soon, but he's also going to reassure them. So that's the literary setting that we have. One other thing I want to say before we read the passage is I'd like to point out that although Jeremiah, um, through his scribe Baruch, he had a, a scribe, uh, uh, wrote the letter, but ultimately this is a letter from the Lord because it's introduced as, thus says the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel to his people. So Jeremiah is only the messenger, and that's what prophets were. They were messengers of the Lord. Uh, but we really are reading a letter that expresses the heart of God for his people who are living in exile. So I would like us now to turn and look at some verses from this. We won't read the whole chapter, um, but I'll read a selection of verses, and then we're going to look at um, these verses in particular. So let me just read verse 1 first. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
So that sets the scene. And we'll, if you kept reading, you'll see that King Jehoiachin is part of that group. And you might remember that the prophet Ezekiel was taken to exile with this same group. So he might be one of the prophets that's mentioned here. In other words, the leadership is being addressed. But the letter proper starts in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they, you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Uh, we'll stop there for, for now. Of course, the letter continues on. But I'd like to focus on these verses particularly because of that famous verse that we all know, verse 11. Um, so it's interesting to note that God begins the letter by saying, I'm the one who brought you into exile. And in fact, that's repeated several times in the, in the, in the, in the chapter, in verse 4, in verse 7, verse 14, verse 20, that God is behind this, that he sent them into exile because of the consequences of their sins. It's because they have sinned and rebelled and broken the covenant that they are in exile, um, but God has allowed that to happen. But he tells them that they should build houses. They should plant gardens. Now, what's interesting about this is that the term to build and to plant echoes a major theme in the book. It's almost like a refrain in the book. Now, this is an example where you need to know the story of, of Jeremiah and also know other parts of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, when Jeremiah is called to become a prophet in Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, verse 10, uh, we are told that his message will include these key words, to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So those four terms, the four terms, uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow, of course, relates to the prophecies of judgment. Unless they repent, they will experience the consequences of their sin. But the prophecies of salvation include the notions of building and planting, building and planting, rebuilding, <laughs> restoring. 
uh, being in a place of safety where you can actually plant a garden and not worry about war, for example. He also tells them to get married, to have children, and to have grandchildren. This actually demonstrates that the exile is not going to be short. If you're going to have time to live in exile till you see your grandchildren, um, we know it's not going to be a, a short time. What's also interesting, he tells them to multiply. Don't decrease, but multiply. Now, as soon as you hear that word multiply, for me, it reminded me of Genesis 1.28, the first command to the first human couple, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's also interesting is it echoes Exodus chapter 1, when the Israelites are in Egypt, that they also were fruitful and multiplied and filled the land of Egypt. And here, again, in another context of exile and captivity, just like in Egypt, they are again told to multiply and not decrease, but to multiply. And, 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 and so again, life is going to go on, but it's going to go on in a place they don't want to be in, in a place of captivity, in a place of exile. At the same time, also, he encouraged them to seek the shalom of the city. The, the NIV says uh, in the, 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 the peace and prosperity of the city. The word shalom, of course, does include the notion of peace, and it also includes the notion of prosperity. Um, it, it includes the notion of wholeness, of well-being as well. It's a very big word. Um, a very beautiful word. And so I, in some sense, the NIV misses uh, the, the nuance that I, I mean, I really actually like the term peace, just as a shalom in itself, um, because throughout that, it's, it's referencing this shalom that if you pray for the shalom of the city, you also will experience shalom, because in the shalom of the city, you also will experience the same shalom. You will experience wholeness, well-being, um, and prosperity, and peace. And, but what's interesting about this, and actually what quite revolutionary, is that they are to pray for their enemies, right? They are to pray for the Babylonian city. This is not praying for Jerusalem. This is praying for their captors, praying for those who have killed their families, their relatives, who've destroyed their homes, who've displaced them. They're in a context that is very sad and very difficult, and they're being asked to pray for their enemies. They're not to take revenge. Instead, they are to pray for those who've caused their suffering. Now, I was thinking about what does that look like for us? How actively do we pray <laughs> and seek the good of others, uh, the good of our city, our, the good of our enemies? Um, do we pray for uh, those who oppose us, our enemies? You know that Jesus Christ actually told us to do the same. In Matthew 5, 44, he says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In Luke's account of this, in Luke 6, 35 and 36, he says to love your enemies, do good to them. And then he mentions, uh, then your reward will be great because you're children of the Most High. And then I love this line, the children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. I was just thinking about that phrase the other day, that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. 
be merciful as your father is merciful. And sometimes I'm actually in that camp that I, I am ungrateful. Uh, but, but thanks be to God for his mercy. He is kind to us. He is kind to the ungrateful. For those who do not deserve mercy, he, he, he gives mercy. And we are to exemplify that. We are to follow his example. And that's what the Judeans were being asked to do here, to actually pray for those who have persecuted them, to pray for them uh, and for their well-being. Now, while there, he's telling them to settle down and to pray for the city, actually continues the warning uh, not to listen to false prophets. Those verses that weren't on the screen, but uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, he reminds them that there continues to be people who are lying and deceiving them, false prophets living among them in Babylon. And, and so don't be deceived, he's telling them. And then also, in, uh, later on in the letter, in, in verse 19, he tells them, he reminds them that you're not listening to me. <laughs> you're, you are supposed to be listening, but you have not listened to the Lord. And so in light of that, God's word that we're going to just look at right now, the final verses here, um, is very gracious. Even though they're not listening to him, even though they're listening to the wrong voices, the wrong messages, the false prophets, the deception around them, God will still be gracious towards them. And that brings us to this wonderful verse, uh, verse uh, 11, which is, of course, part of the verses uh, 10 through 14. Uh, verse 10 introduces us again to the, the 70 years until Babylon is completed, but then it says that I will visit you, I will attend to you, I will fulfill my good promise to you and bring you back home, back to the promised land. The plans that God has for the exiles is that they will experience salvation, that they will experience restoration, and it's tied to the promise of returning to the promised land, to return home, to return to Jerusalem. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. God knows. In fact, the, if you read the text in Hebrew, the text is actually emphasizing that God knows because it says, I, I know, I, I know the plans I have for you. What a comforting thought for the exiles. They did not know what God's plans were, were for them. Uh, they were struggling about why they were there. And we might not know what God's plans are for us, but we can be rest, rest assured that God knows and we can trust in God. He knows and he has our best interest in mind. He desires our best. His plan is good, not to harm us, but to give us a future and hope. It's a good word, a word uh, that is not filled with calamity, but it's filled with shalom. Again, shalom. The word there that's translated as prosperity in the NIV is that word shalom, uh, peace, wholeness, wellness, etc. It is not God's will for them to experience calamity and evil. He, they have a future and a hope. And this is very powerful in a context where the people are in despair. They are discouraged. And we know that from other texts in the prophets and other scriptures where it describes the attitude of those living in exile. We have a few verses from the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 40, 27, it says, Why do you complain? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by God. In another verse in Isaiah 49, 14, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. 
This was the experience of the exiles. They felt despair. They felt that God had forgotten them, that he, his way was hidden from them. He had forsaken them. So, when we, so we, when we hear these words, I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans, not evil plans, not bad things. There is a future. There is a hope. And that is a profound message to a community that is in despair. And that, of course, is a message of hope that we can, uh, um, uh, that can sustain our own hope in the present. Now, we usually stop there, right? <laughs> because we memorize this verse. We may not read any further, but we actually miss God's desired response to this plan. The next verses say that God wants them to seek Him. They will seek Him. A time will come when they will seek Him, and they will call on Him. They will come to Him. They will seek Him with all their heart, and, and they will pray, and God will listen to them. And what's interesting here is that notion of coming to God and calling on His name and seeking Him with all their heart in genuine sincerity, uh, fully they're seeking God, that really implies repentance. Even though the word repentance is not there, it implies that God desires that His people turn back to Him. They've walked away from Him. They've forsaken Him and forsaken the covenant relationship. He wants them to come back. And He is saying that, yes, you will come back. You will seek Me. And when you do seek Me and come back uh, in genuine repentance, you will be found by Me. I will have mercy. I will listen. I will be there. I will not be distant. I will hear your prayers. And so, so he's calling on them to seek him, to call upon him, to repent of their sins and turn back to God. And he reassures them, as I said, that he will be there and he will listen to their prayers. So the context of this very beautiful verse that we have memorized is really one that's very difficult for the people, living so far away from home, from their loved ones, having lost their homes, and etc. And at the same time, they're hearing false voices, negative voices, <laughs> deceiving voices, deception all around that's very tempting to listen to. And so in the midst of that, there is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that there is always a limit to God's wrath and judgment, but there is no limit to God's love, grace, patience, kindness, mercy. It's limitless, limitless. There's no limit at all. There is an end to the consequences of sin here, but there is unlimited resources of God's love and mercy for His people. So this is the wonderful message of this letter. Of course, he continues to warn them against uh, this false prophecies. And if you read the rest of the letter, you discover the names of three of the false prophets living in Babylon. But for the sake of time of today, we won't talk about them. Um, one thing we do know is that Jeremiah's letter did get to uh, Babylon. If we ever wondered if it got lost <laughs> for some reason, we know that it arrived because in verse 28, uh, uh, the, one of the false prophets actually quotes from the letter. Uh, he quotes back the letter from Jeremiah. So let, I, I talked about the literary context before this chapter, which set the setting of why Jeremiah wrote this letter. But let's now think about what comes after. What comes after this chapter? If we read chapter 30 through chapter 33, um, 
we now have a change in tone. We now have wonderful prophecies of salvation and restoration. Um, some scholars refer to Jeremiah chapter 30 to 33 as the book of consolation, the book of comfort, because God reassures his people um, that they have a future. And in, in fact, now we learn what that future looks like. We learn, and in fact, the, the hope in the future that was prophesied by Jeremiah in 29, about, about returning to the promised land, returning to Jerusalem, returning to their homes. Uh, now we learn something more about what is in their future. What is part of their hope? That God's plan includes a new covenant. God's plan includes the coming of the Messiah. So the good plans that God has for his people includes Jesus, the Messiah, the hope uh, for the world. That's part of the good plan that God has for his people by sending his son Jesus Christ so that we could experience uh, salvation and restoration, that we too can have a future and a hope. So the next time you hear Jeremiah 29, 11, I hope that we may be able to think perhaps a little bit about the historical context and the literary context and how it, that promise resonates within the larger canonical context, within the larger redemptive story of the scriptures. Now that divine word of hope that came to a people that were living in a very difficult context in exile where they're told to hold on a little longer because they're going to be there for a while. We too uh, have similar circumstances. When we're looking at applying the Bible, one of the things we want to ask, um, in what ways is our circumstances similar to theirs? And in what ways are, is our circumstances different from theirs? How is our situation um, similar or different? And are there parallels between our different contexts? Because of course we're living in a totally different context. So here I want to emphasize that the same word of hope that they were given also applies to us. We too live in a very difficult world, a world for, full of turmoil and conflict and pain and full of deception and lies, etc. But God's plans have not changed. They are for our good. They are for, to give us a future and hope. And we have experienced uh, that hope through salvation in Jesus Christ. Because of that, we can quote this verse as well, because we've experienced it through Jesus Christ. But remember, when we quote this verse, we also have to remember what follows it. God calls us to call on Him, to repent, to seek Him, to um, seek Him with all our heart. And if we seek Him with all our heart, we, he will be found, and we will, uh, He will be there. He will be our God. We will be His people. Uh, he will listen to us. And so He calls us also to seek Him. And we are comforted, even though when we sin and we mess up, we know that God is still faithful. He does not give up on us, His people. So we too can hold on to the same promises while we're waiting for Jesus Christ to return and to make all things new and to restore all things. And while we wait, we too can seek the shalom, the well-being, the prosperity, the good uh, of our neighbors, our cities, our communities, and we can continue to pray for our world at this time. Amen. <laughs>